I want you, if you will, to please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 1. Last Lord's Day, we, take, we took the opportunity to look at this tremendous first section of First Peter chapter 1, specifically in verses 3 to 12. I'd like to read again this text before you so that we might receive the setting for our morning together. 1 Peter 1, 3-12 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may result or found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Believe it or not, Peter writes... One long sentence here in verses 3 through 9. You think I'm long-winded. One sentence contains tremendous truth about the doctrine of salvation. Sunday last, we talked about the first aspect of this doctrine of salvation, and we called it the particulars of our sure and complete salvation. We looked at three of them. First, we said that we ought to praise God for His mercy in our regeneration. We saw that from verse 3. And then in verse 4, we saw another particular, and that was 
that we ought to praise God for His promise in granting us a future inheritance. And then in verse 5, we said that particularly with regard to the doctrine of salvation, we ought to praise God for His power in protecting our salvation to the very end. Those are wonderful particulars that Peter wanted to tell us very specifically about our own salvation. He's unpacking for us what we need to know about being saved. There are two other outline points, one that we'll cover today, Lord willing, and next time when we gather together, we'll talk about verses 10 to 12. This morning, however, I want to focus in on verses 6 to 9. 6 to 9. And I want to talk about the preciousness of our sure and complete salvation. If we've talked about the particulars in verses 3 to 5, I want to focus in this morning on the preciousness of our sure and complete salvation. And then, if the Lord brings us back together again some weeks from now, we'll look at verses 10 to 12 and the prophets of our sure and complete salvation. But for this morning, we want to center in on the preciousness of our salvation. I want to speak to you this morning about four great realities that speak of the preciousness of our sure and complete salvation. Four great truths. Four great realities. That's what I want to call them because each one of them are really true about us as we are in Christ. The first one is contained for us in verse 6. In this, Peter says, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Stop there. The principled reality that I want to share with you this morning, which is our first outline point, is this. The preciousness of our sure and complete salvation, according to this verse, verse 6, brings great joy, especially in the midst of trials. That's what Peter wants us to know about the doctrine of salvation. He says to us that our salvation is so precious that we ought to see it that way because in salvation we are brought great joy, especially in the midst of trials. Beloved, when you realize what God has done in saving you, if you know Him, if you have a relationship with Him, if you realize, if you were to understand the full grasp, the full manifestation of what God has done for you in Christ, you would have nothing but great joy. Regardless of your circumstances, your focus, if it is on the grace of God, as He has brought it to you in your deliverance from sin, should bring you nothing but joy. Did you just hear it from my friend, Professor Jeff DeVriza, when he talked about the small nature of the church in Belgium? 10,000 evangelical, Bible-believing, conservative Christians in a Flemish or Dutch country of 6 million? It's an amazing thought. When I first met Jeff, and we had some time for 
socializing, invited me over to his home. We talked about the church. He described for me the church in Belgium and in the Netherlands, which is, of course, Holland, the, the country just north of Belgium. And I learned about the church there and gave me a great burden for the country. And then I shared with him about my past experiences in Christianity in the United States. And when he told me that there were only 10,000 believers or so who were truly born-again, Bible-believing people for whom this doctrine of salvation would be very precious, I thought immediately about my past church ministry at Grace Community Church in Southern California. And when I began to describe the church there, he asked me, how many people regularly worship there? And I said, about 10,000. And after his jaw dropped, we both looked at each other and realized that we both serve in completely different situations. When I quizzed him a little further about how many full-time pastors might be available to minister to those 10,000 believers, he thought for a time, and because he knows very well this area and ministers in this part of the world, he said, about five. I said, five? Five full-time pastors, full-time vocational shepherds for, for 10,000 people in a country? Yes. I thought about the six full-time pastors who serve on the staff of this church alone. I thought to myself, Lord, give us Belgium. Let us help the struggling church there. Let us work to see this great doctrine of salvation come to this place. But you can hear it in his voice. You can know it. There is nevertheless, even though in the midst of great suffering, and he didn't tell you at all, although he alluded to it, about coming to faith in Christ out of a Roman Catholic background, both he and his wife, and having been excommunicated, shunned from your own family. Herlinda's family, his wife, still not having a relationship with her over 20 years now. No grandparents, no relationship there, family, friends, all of the things that we might enjoy. Those are things that we might take for granted. They don't. The joy of the salvation of a soul is greater than the suffering one undergoes. Did you hear that? The joy of the salvation that you and I receive is greater than any possible suffering in this life. And did you know that is precisely the point Peter makes in 1 Peter chapter 4? Turn to it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says to these suffering, alienated, scattered believers these words, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Do you see the juxtapositioning of those two ideas? Marvelous. The sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing. Suffering, rejoicing. You say, wait a minute, how can I suffer and rejoice at the same time? Peter says you can. In fact, he says, keep on rejoicing. 
so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. Exultation means praise. If you are reviled, Peter says, for the name of Christ, you are blessed. There it is again, reviled, blessed. Suffering, rejoicing. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When he says in 1 Peter 1.6, In this you greatly rejoice. I think the in this is talking about the whole matter of the doctrine of salvation. I think everything that he has encompassed in verses 3 to 5, in fact, even in verses 1 and 2, the foreknowledge of God, our election, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, obedience to Jesus Christ because we've been sprinkled with His blood, His great mercy, verse 3, who has caused us to be regenerated to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And inheritance, verse 4, that's, that's not perishable, that isn't defiled, it will not fade away, it's reserved in heaven for you. You're protected by the power of God, verse 5, for a salvation through faith that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in all of this, you greatly rejoice. That's his point. Greatly rejoice. And don't miss... That qualifier, greatly rejoice. Do you see it there? That great rejoicing means jubilant and thankful exulting, praising. By the way, that word is not used in classical Greek. It's actually a word that's not ever used by Paul. This is Petrine. This is his word. It's a distinctively Christian use. Why? Because when other people suffer, they aren't thankful. They aren't rejoicing. They don't embrace it. He says, you are to be continually rejoicing greatly at this marvelous salvation. That's what he's saying. Is that what you do? When trial and test come, do you rejoice? Do you look to see what God is doing in your life? Do you look to Him or do you kick against the goads? Do you say, no, this is, this is not right, this is not best, this is not the right plan? And remember, this is in the context of suffering. The whole book is in the context of suffering. And he says, I want to tell you first and foremost about the great doctrine of salvation. And I want you to know that there is great rejoicing in the doctrine of salvation, even or especially in the midst of great trial. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, Matthew five twelve? Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution, rejoice. Reviled, blessed. And isn't that the same thing that the writer to Hebrews says about Jesus himself in Hebrews chapter 12? This is, this is what God brings to us. Jesus, who for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Joy, cross. Rejoicing, persecution. Suffering, being reviled. You know what we might say as a principial idea here? You're a Christian, you're going to suffer. 
If you're a Christian, you're going to suffer. Doesn't, isn't that what Paul says? For those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you shall suffer persecution. And Peter wants to prepare them. He's a pastor. He's a shepherd. He wants to tell these suffering Christians. He he wants his readers to know that their focus must be on the salvation they've been granted, not the suffering that is as a result of it. Isn't that what we should do in our Christian lives? We should focus on the salvation that we've been granted in Christ, not the suffering that comes with it. The suffering will come with it. It will come. If you want to do it the right way, you'll suffer. But if you suffer, your focus is on the God of suffering who is also the God of your salvation. Isn't that what he says here in verse 6? Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And I imagine that someone immediately says, for a little while? Oh no, I've been suffering for a long while. Is that so? It's a relative term, isn't it? What's a little while? Oh, a little while for some could be just that, a little while. A little while for others could be a long while. Comparatively, it may be that Peter's saying in the grand scheme of things, in the big picture of God's plan, everyone is going to suffer for a little while. Guess what? Any suffering that we undergo as a result of being a Christian in this life is only a little suffering because when the suffering is over, we'll be in eternity for how long? Forever. Just a little while. It's not meant by Peter to minimize suffering. It's meant to give us the big picture of suffering. And notice he says, if necessary... Suffering is necessary because all of us learn best when we suffer the most. All of us. The best learning that we undergo in the Christian life is when we suffer the most. Why? Because it drives us to Christ. It brings us to our knees. It brings us to utter dependence. It shows us the great need that we have for sustenance by God, for the power of God, for the equipping of God. You see, Peter's a realist. He knows that there's going to be suffering. He knows what they're going through. He knows that part of God's plan includes, as he says it here, multifaceted trials. Do you see it listed there? Various trials. It means variegated, various, multitudinous, multifaceted trials. Poikilois, multifaceted. He actually uses a word that speaks of the very same thing in 1 Peter 4.10 when he says, the manifold grace of God as you use your spiritual gift in ministering to others. Hey, now that is a tremendous insight. If you have various or multifaceted trials... You'll also, according to 1 Peter 4.10, have the various multifaceted grace of God to deal with those trials. See, no one can say, but wait a minute, I'm going through a trial that no one else has ever gone through. That's not what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13. 
He says, no testing, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is human. Unless you're not human, we're all going through the same stuff. And since we're all human, it's the same stuff. He says, God is faithful, who will not allow you, you believer, you church, to be tested, tempted beyond what you are able. Isn't that such a great promise of God's Word? Beyond what you are able. No one is ever able to say, I'm not able. No one is ever able to say, I can't handle it. It's too much for me. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able, but with the testing, provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Bear up underneath. Every Christian who was suffering as a scattered alien in Peter's time in Asia Minor, where it was, whether it was somebody in Pontus or Galatia or Cappadocia or Asia, anywhere or Bithynia, they're chosen of God, they're elect from the foundation of the world, they're sanctified by the power and working of the Holy Spirit, they're to obey Jesus Christ because they've been sprinkled with His blood, they are in fact regenerated by the mercy of God, they've received an inheritance, it's reserved in heaven for them, it's imperishable, it is undefiled. It will never fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you. God will bring it to its ultimate end. It's a done deal. It's written in the Lamb's book of life in eternity for all the future. And because of that, I can endure suffering. God, I, I see the plan. I, I see what you're doing. I see what you're bringing here. You know, this idea of suffering and learning the tests of life in that suffering is also brought to us to bear in James chapter 1. You probably know it well. Look at it with me, James 1. He says in James 1, 2, and by the way, there are many parallels between the epistle of James and the epistle of Peter first. James 1, 2, Consider it all joy, there you go. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter multifaceted trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You remember what I said about learning most in the crucible of suffering? There it is. Your faith is producing endurance because it's in the endurance test. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Beloved, God includes as a necessary plan of His your suffering for the purpose of bringing you to ultimate salvation. He'll stop at nothing in order to bring you your salvation with a character that is conformed to the very image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the plan. And what's my response to that? In this you greatly rejoice. You're rejoicing this morning? Maybe you've come to church and you've not rejoiced. Maybe you're sour, maybe dour, discouraged, depressed, you're disconsolate, you're not greatly rejoicing, and that because your focus is not on this great salvation. Just focus in on it. I've said before, there are times in my own household, ten people trying to live together in a small space, that can bring distressing news sometimes. And we have to remind ourselves constantly, and really that's no suffering at all, is it? That God is doing a work. 
that we're saved, that we're on our way to heaven, that God has a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, for what do we need to be discouraged? For what? doesn't matter what's happening. God in the crucible of life brings a salvation and included in that salvation is a suffering. And when that suffering is doing its perfect work, you'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And God will bring you the, the side benefit of all side benefits. Great rejoicing. Great rejoicing. I grow best when the heat is on the most. You remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16? And Paul is a sufferer. He knows what it is to suffer. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look at the things which are seen, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, that's our human body, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed while we are in this tent we groan, being burdened. You see, that's a realist attitude. We're groaning, we're burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And then this is tremendous, verse 5. Now He who has prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Yes, they're suffering. We're realists. We don't say that once you come to Jesus, you're happy and you never have any problems. That's not true. In fact, when you come to Jesus Christ, your problems in one sense really begin. Why? Because everything is fighting against you to be conformed to the character or the image of Jesus Christ. Satan, the world, your own sinfulness, everything is fighting against you, but in that salvation you greatly rejoice. This is, this is all over the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 you also, Paul says to the Thessalonians, became Im imitators of us and of the Lord, notice this, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Tribulation, joy. Suffering, rejoicing. Being reviled, you're blessed. This is part of the Christian life. It's part and parcel of the Christian life. And the command for Peter is, in this you greatly rejoice. There's a second preciousness, and it's contained for us in verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the principle here? Preciousness 
the preciousness of our sure and complete salvation ultimately proves that we have a genuine faith. That's what Peter is saying. Our salvation is so precious to us that what happens is that when God grants me faith, faith to believe, a repentance to turn, that He also produces that throughout the whole of my Christian life. It shows that I'm really His. That's what Peter's saying. The proof of your faith. The proof of it. That's an evidentiary term. There's evidence. There's evidence that through your suffering... Through the trials of life, through the steps of despondency, God is doing a work in you to mature your faith, and the proof is evident. If you were being put on trial for being a Christian, they would say, guilty as charged. Yes, it's true, I'm a Christian. Yes, it's true, I'm suffering. Yes, it's true that the proof of my faith is what shows me that God is working in me. You ever been struggling through a trial and really wondered, am I a Christian? Can I really be responding this way? Is this the way a Christian responds? Is this what a saved person does when adversity comes his or her way? Well, if you're truly a believer in Christ, you'll find both now and in the future that your response to God's trials will be one, as Peter says here, Praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And by the way, you see those two words at the beginning of verse 7? So that. That's a purpose clause in the Greek text. So that. For the purpose that the proof of your faith through the very purpose of God in trials gives you a faith that will ultimately rejoice and will ultimately be found by God to be praise, glory, and honor. Not shame. Not shame that is coming. Not embarrassment. Not a, a cowering. Uh, not a shying away. But a holy boldness because the proof of my, my faith has shown it. And to make sure that they understood exactly what Peter was referring to, he uses an analogy. Notice what he says in verse 7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. He uses the very analogy that we might use today, precious metal. We would probably see as precious today this idea of gold as they would back then. Gold is very precious. Gold may be one of the most precious metals that we have on the earth. Valuable. Means a great deal. Means a great deal to a lot of people. People will give up their lives for a great stash of gold. And Peter says the same thing. You need to see that what God is doing in testing you, in bringing trials to you, is reduced, is, is producing in you a faith that is provable. You're put on trial. The fiery trial. And what comes out on the other side is the proof of it, and that's your faith. It's real. It's genuine. I'm trusting God. I'm believing God, even though this is very hard. And it's more precious than gold. Gold, as precious as it is, according to this verse, is going to perish. It's part of this created order. It's going to perish. It's going to be gone. 
But the preciousness of our faith is the, the proof that God shows us that we really do believe, and that's more precious than gold because that believing never ends. Oh, glory to God. It never ends. You know that even in eternity, we will continue to believe in God. We'll see Him as He is, and we will be like Him, but we will still be believing. Only there, the believing will be reality. We'll see it. We'll experience it. We'll touch it. We'll taste it. We'll feel it. Here, may not always be so. By the way, this particular idea of proof, that word proof there, and then the word, even though tested, the Greek word dokimos. And you know what that particular word is all about? It's that same idea of the gold. You'd have a refiner, a blacksmith, and he would be involved in what we might call the dokimos prospect of placing some gold that would have some dross overlaid upon it. If you've ever seen a silver tray, the particular silver, silver, silver excuse me, tray that we were given for our fifth anniversary at the Bible Church, I'm sorry to say we don't keep up much with it because it takes much work, and if you saw the tray today, you'd see that it was very faded. Now, it's not faded in terms of its intrinsic value, but if you did hard work, if you rubbed it, and if you rubbed it with the right chemicals, what you'd do is you'd find something underneath, and what would you find? You'd find the silver. That's the same thing with the gold. The refiner takes the gold, and it has the dross overlaid upon it because of time, and that, that refiner takes that gold, and he places it in that refiner's fire, and he turns it up to an intense heat, heat more than the dross is able to contain, and because it's combustible, what happens? The dross ignites, and then it disappears. And what comes out as a result? Nothing but fine, pure gold. That's what Peter's saying. Here's the dokimos. Here's the testing. You've gone through the refiner's fire, and the proof of your faith is more precious than just physical gold. That's perishable. But what occurs is a testing by God, even by fire, the fire of suffering, the fire of persecution. And what, what is found? What is the result? You come forth as gold. Praise, honor, Glory. Nothing but good in that. No negative at all. Nothing but good in that. Praise and glory and honor. There's a genuineness there. The dross is incinerated, leaving only the truest part of the metal itself. And that's what suffering does. You want suffering. Not, not, not a masochist. You want suffering, not for the sake of the suffering, but for the sake of what the suffering produces. And what does it produce? Proof. You've been tested. You've been found worthy. I wish we had time to go through some of the other texts that use this word dokimos. One of them, however, is 2 Corinthians 13.5. And Paul says to both the Corinthians and to his accusers in that text these words, Test yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. And then he says this, Or do you not know that Jesus Christ lives in you, comma, unless you are, what? Discredited. Ah, dokimos. 
The little a, the, the alpha privative, it negates the word. You were tested and found unworthy. Tested and found not to be a Christian. You see, that's what suffering also does. It, it determines the wheat and the tares, the true and the false, the right and the wrong. That's what dokimos does. It, it's the refiner, God himself, taking the person and putting him into the fire of suffering. And what results is this, when the, when the metal is pulled out. If you're not a Christian, there's nothing there. And that's what suffering does. But if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, what comes out is pure gold. Edmund Clowney writes this, Peter has declared that God keeps us for glory by faith. Our faith, then, must continue to the end of our lifelong pilgrimage. If our faith is to endure, it must be purified and stress-tested. Like gold, it must pass through the furnace. Trials should not surprise us or cause us to doubt God's faithfulness. Rather, we should actually be glad for them. God sends trials to strengthen our trust in Him so that our faith would not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. The fires of affliction or persecution will not reduce our faith to ashes. Fire does not destroy gold. It only removes combustible impurities. Yet, even gold will at last vanish with the whole of this created order. Faith is infinitely more precious and more enduring. Like a jeweler putting his most precious metals in the crucible, so God proves us in the furnace of trial and affliction. The genuineness of our faith shines from the fire to His praise. That's what happens. You come out of the fire of adversity, and God says, I praise you. You know that's what He says here? This is not our praising God. This is not our glorying in God. This is not our honoring of God. This is what God says about us. This will be a result found in you that God will say, I praise you, I glory you, I honor you. You say, God praising us? Yes. Not in the sense that we praise Him. God says, I bless you. Well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I give you honor. I give you a place of distinction. I give you glory. That is, I give you blessing. That's, that's what occurs in a person who says, Lord, I embrace the suffering. Bring what you will so that the proof of my faith will be evident to you. Well, if you're a Christian, you want that. You want God to one day say, as you're standing before Him, Lord, I want You to accept me. I want You to affirm me. I want You to give me a place of distinction. I want You to give me a place of honor. I want You to give me a place of glory, not for my own sake, but for Your glory, Your honor, Your praise. You see, when He gives that to us, we invert it and give it right back to Him. There's a third preciousness idea, and it's very fast. The preciousness of our, our sure and complete salvation manifests greater love, greater faith, inexpressible joy, and full glory. Notice what he says in verse 8. 
And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You notice again all of these words which speak of suffering and glory, suffering and glory. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him right now is the implication. You believe in him. You greatly rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. Love. We don't see Christ. I've never seen the face of Christ. I've never seen the person of Christ. You've never seen the person of Christ. And yet the Bible says, if you believe in Him, you love Him. Do you love Christ? You haven't seen Him. You don't know what He looks like. You've never seen Him do those wonderful miracles. You've never seen Him raise someone from the dead. The Bible says, by faith, you love Him. The Bible even says... In 1 Corinthians 16, anathema to the person who does not love the Lord. You must love Him, even though you haven't seen Him. And then he says, and even though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him. Faith. You remember doubting Thomas? He said, Lord, in order for me to believe, I have to see you. I have to touch you. I, I want to put my hands in your side or vice versa. I have to have something. Give me something to go on. But what did Jesus say? Blessed are those who have not seen me, but believe. We've not seen him, but we believe. We believe in Christ. We believe that He's the Son of God. We believe that He's the Lord of all creation. We believe that He'll one day come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe that when He comes, He'll be coming in full effulgence and glory. And we want to come to Him prepared, ready. I want to come to Him in love and faith. And not just that, but that word again, inexpressible joy. I don't know about you, but there are times, honestly, honestly now, where when I think upon the great verities of the faith, the great truths of salvation, this wonderful doctrine of both salvation and sanctification and ultimate glorification, that I say to myself, I cannot express my gratitude to you, God, in words. I think that's what he's driving at here. Joy inexpressible. We, we can't even tell you about it. By the way, that joy inexpressible, present indicative. It is indicative of your life that you are in a continuing state of expressing the inexpressible to God, your joy over your salvation. I don't think I'll ask for a show of hands about how many who are expressing inexpressible joy. But I'll tell you, that's what Peter says is all we're supposed to do when we know that we've been saved. It's like those... It's like those Christians who, when they first come to Christ, they're naive enough to think that they have to tell everybody about it. Right? And you have that experience when you came to Christ and you thought to yourself, ah, everybody, why, why hasn't everybody done this? Why, why hasn't everyone believed? Oh, why isn't everybody sharing their faith? What's going on? I just love the, the joy inexpressible of new believers. Where does it go? Where does it go? 
But why is it so fleeting? Why, why is it elusive? Well, I imagine part of it is because when we start to undergo the suffering of the Christian life, we start asking questions. We start wondering, Lord, is, is this what it's going to be like? You mean I'm going to have to suffer? Oh, but if you can see, dear Christian friend, that if you, mo- if you move through the suffering to the joy inexpressible, the loving and believing in Christ, you can express what he says is full of glory. Full of glory. We talk about glory. We talk about going there. We talk about the glory of God. This says about us that we're going to have a fullness of glory. And then lastly, the preciousness of our sure and complete salvation finally results in the eternal salvation of our souls. Look at verse 9. Tremendous truth. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is it. This is the end. Tell us. This is the goal. This is the result. This is what our precious salvation does for us. It actually issues in a full and complete and final salvation. You ever done this? Started a book but never finished? You ever started a task but never finished? You ever said to yourself, I'm going to do that? Sometimes we even link up so that people can understand our seriousness about it uh, as God is my witness. Some people might say this, over my dead body will I not do this. If it kills me, I'm going to accomplish this. And how many times does it occur that you look back and say, I didn't do it. It didn't happen. It didn't come. It didn't reach its goal, its end. Not God. This is what he says. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Because of the instrument of God, you're believing God is going to do a work, such a work, that you're going to be saved finally, ultimately, in the end. This is a tremendous doctrine of salvation. This is, this is what it's all about. We ought to be talking until about 1.20 p.m. until Todd and Tandy come on the radio. Because there's nothing else to talk about. What, what is it that we're consumed with? What are we talking about? What makes up our language? What excites us? What gives us a sense of the divine? Who do we love? Who am I believing? Do I have a joy inexpressible in the news? Do I have a full glory in the events of the day? Oh, it's so fleeting. It's so uninspiring. This week, because I knew I was going to be tackling this very text, I read some years ago this wonderful book. I love the Puritan titles. It's by Thomas Vincent. And this is the title, The True Christian's Love to the Unseen Christ. Don't you love that? The True Christian's Love to the unseen Christ. And I love their subtitles. They're usually about five paragraphs long. This one isn't. The true Christian's love to the unseen Christ or a discourse chiefly tending to excite and promote the decaying love of Christ in the hearts of Christians. Oh, my. 
Don't you know I picked that up and started reading and then started saying, Ouch! You know what it says? As I close, this is what it says. Ask yourself if this is your heart. The life of Christianity consists very much in our love to Christ. Without love to Christ, we are as much without spiritual life as a carcass when the soul is fled from it is without natural life. Faith without love to Christ is a dead faith, and a Christian without love to Christ is a dead Christian, dead in trespasses and sins. Without love to Christ, we may have the name of Christians, but we are holy without the nature. We may have the form of godliness, but are holy without the power. Christ knows the command and influence which love to Him and the truth and strength of it has, how it will engage all the other affections of His disciples for Him. And if He has their love, their desires will be chiefly after Him. Their delights will be chiefly in Him. Their hopes and expectations will be chiefly from Him. Their hatred, fear, grief, anger will be carried forth chiefly unto sin as it is offensive unto Him. He knows that love will engage and employ for Him all the powers and faculties of their souls. Their thoughts will be brought into captivity and obedience unto Him. Their understandings will be employed in seeking and finding out His truths. Their memories will be receptacles to retain them. Their consciences will be ready to accuse and excuse as His faithful deputies. Their wills will choose and refuse according to His direction and revealed pleasure. All their senses and the members of their bodies will be His servants. Their eyes will see for Him. Their ears will hear for Him. Their tongues will speak for Him. Their hands will work for Him. Their feet will walk for Him. All their gifts and talents will be at His devotion and service. If He has their love, they will be ready to do for Him what He requires. They will suffer for Him whatever He calls them to if they have much love to Him, they will not think much of denying themselves, taking up His cross and following Him wherever He leads them. Love to Christ then, being so essential and to true Christianity, so earnestly looked for by our Lord and Master, so powerfully commanding in the soul and over the whole man, so greatly influential on duty, I have made choice to treat this subject of love to Christ. And my chief endeavor herein shall be to excite and provoke Christians unto the lively and vigorous exercise of this grace of love into the Lord Jesus Christ, of which incentive there is great and universal need. Don't you want to just read the rest of that? Say, Lord, do I love you? Do I love the unseen Christ? Is he mine? Do I have this great doctrine of salvation in my own soul? If not, I want you to invite you to come to Christ right now, right this very moment. If you know nothing of this love, this excitement, this provoking of the love of Christ, you can right now, this very moment. You can pray to receive Christ right now. I want you to bow your heads with me. As you do, I want you to say to yourself, I have no love for Christ. I have no desire to follow Him. I have no inclination to deny myself, to take up a cross, to follow Him, regardless of the cost. If that's what you believe, the outcome of your faith will not be the salvation of your souls because you don't have faith. 
but you can. God can grant it to you, and He will for His good pleasure. He doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. You say in your heart, I, I believe. I believe in Christ. I believe in the one in whom I've not seen. I believe that He died. I believe that He was buried. I believe that He was raised again from the dead. I, I believe in this message. I, I've heard it before and, and I hear it again today and I, I want to believe in Christ. You can believe even now. Trust Him. Turn to Him. Refuse all other would-be saviors. Cling to Him. Ask Him to give you life in Himself. Turn from your sin. Ask Him for the gift of repentance, a turning. Ask Him for faith. Ask Him for the, the ability, the capacity to believe that He exists and that He will reward you who seek Him. If that's what your heart is saying, exploding with right now, it is because God is working in you and He will save you. The outcome of that faith will be the salvation of your souls. If that's the case with you, I want you, when the service comes to a close, to speak with someone who's a member of this church or you might have come with or Speak to myself or one of our elders. We have a prayer room that we can show you. Ask someone. Ask if someone can pray with you, talk with you, counsel with you. And I should also pray so fervently this morning for those of you who already know Christ. Do you love Christ in the way that Thomas Vincent speaks of here? Oh, you may have had a love for Christ it may have even been an abiding love for a time, but your love has grown cold. You need a fresh infusion of the teaching of Peter regarding your own salvation, and you have received it now. Love Christ in a new and fresh way. Confess your sin. Seek to be delivered from these worldly pursuits. Speak of a love for Christ in ways that you once were able to speak of when you first came to Him. Oh, even though now, Father, we don't see Your risen Son, we, we love Him. And even though we can't see Him right this very moment, we believe in Him. We see through the eyes of faith. And we trust Him with our lives. And we ask that You would make us joyful in our suffering, that You would prove our faith through the testing of the crucible of suffering, that You would give us this final and ultimate salvation whenever You please. And when we're done, may You say about us, well done, You good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Love Christ. Love His Word. In His name, amen.